Hello and good evening. Let me read for us Mark chapter 4 for us our text this evening from verse 26 to 34. If you do have a Blue Church Bible, please do turn there. It's on page 1006. So our text this evening, Mark chapter 4, verse 26 to 34. Jesus also said, This is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground, night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. All by itself the soil produces corn, first the stalk, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. As soon as the grain is ripe, he puts the sickle to it, because the harvest has come. Again he said, what shall we say the kingdom of God is like? Or what parable shall we use to describe it? It is like a mustard seed, which is the smallest seed you plant in the ground. Yet when planted, it grows and becomes the largest of all the garden plants, with such big branches that the birds of the air can perch in its shade. With many similar parables, Jesus spoke the word to them as much as they could understand. He did not say anything to them without using a parable, but when he was alone with his own disciples, he explained everything. Let me pray for us as we begin our sermon this evening. Let's pray. Father, as we stand on the threshold of your word this evening, may you indeed give us ears to hear from you, to hear from your Holy Spirit through your word this evening. Help us, Father, we ask in the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Over the last few weeks, we spent our time together in Mark chapter 4, a dense section of Jesus' teaching, uh, looking at parables, where Jesus is teaching in parables and on parables. Two weeks ago, our first sermon on the section, Scott helpfully defined for us what a parable is. This is the definition we've been using. Simply put, a parable is a vivid illustration of spiritual truth drawn from what would have been everyday life the original listeners 2,000 years ago. Then last week, Josh helped us by adding to this description by telling us what these parables are all about. And they're all about what the kingdom of God is to look like. Let's remember what it is we've learnt so far, that the seed is the gospel and the good news of Jesus Christ. And the farmer or the sower in these parables illustrates the gospel messenger. And this is the language Jesus has been using to teach us about the kingdom of God. And so far in this gospel, Jesus has been travelling around preaching, and he's about to send out his disciples to do the same thing. And what he's doing is liking that to the kingdom. He's comparing telling people the gospel with sowing seeds, and telling disciples this is how the kingdom grows. And what it means for us is that as people hear the gospel, as we tell people the gospel, as they hear the teaching of the Bible, this is when the kingdom of God comes. As people hear and believe the word, they enter into Jesus' kingdom. What that means is that people come under Jesus' rule and submit their lives to him and have hope of life to come. What it means to enter into Jesus' kingdom is to acknowledge that Jesus is both your saviour and your king. But I find this word kingdom quite interesting though. It's one of these words which you hear and immediately 
things pop up into our heads. For some of us, when we hear the word kingdom, we might think of the monarchy in all its pomp and ceremony. Perhaps you think of military might, conquering foreign lands far away. But for all these things for us, it's things in the past, things in a distant past. But if we put ourselves in the shoes of these guys in Mark 4, if we put ourselves in the shoes of the disciples, of the crowd Jesus is speaking to, and say kingdom to them, these guys got kingdom. First century Jews knew all about kingdom. They knew about the one they used to have, their great King David, and the height of the power and prosperity under Solomon. Then they longed for this great kingdom to come. Yet here they are in Mark 4, under the imperial thumb of the Roman Empire. Let's think about disciples, especially as Jesus talks to them here. These are ordinary Jewish men waiting for this great kingdom to come. Then this man Jesus rocks up onto the scene. And we read at the start of Mark's Gospel, Jesus proclaims, The kingdom is near. Repent and believe the good news. And so the disciples follow the strange man from Nazareth, who does amazing things, and says some even stranger things. Yet he only has to show 12 men for it. Perhaps these followers are starting to think, this is it. God's going to bring in his kingdom. God's rule and reign is coming to Jerusalem. We're going to have a king, and somehow Jesus is going to be this king. Somehow Jesus is going to force these Romans out, and God's going to triumph once again. But, but Jesus, how are you going to do this? We have nothing. You have nothing you don't have a home to stay at, Jesus. You, you stay with Peter. We have no military might. We have no power, Jesus. How is your kingdom going to work? And it's into this mindset that Jesus speaks to the disciples and the crowds. And here he tells them two parables. Two parables, two points. First, it is surprising that we wait for the kingdom to grow. And secondly, it is surprising how big the kingdom will grow. Look with me at the first parable here from verse 26. You've got an ordinary looking story about a farmer. He sows some seeds, it grows, and then there's a harvest. Perfectly ordinary story. But when reading parables, we should ask, what here seems to be unordinarily emphasised? What point did Jesus seem to be drawing our attention to? Well, if you look with me at verse 27, night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows. Well, of course it does, Jesus. Isn't it obvious? Of course, a seed's growth is not dependent on when someone sleeps. See, what Jesus wants us to see here is what this man is doing. And this man is simply doing nothing. He's going to bed and he wakes up. He's going to bed and he wakes up. That is this man's contribution to the growth of the kingdom of God. But Jesus isn't done here. The man sleeps, he gets up. He sleeps, he gets up. But what about the seed that's sown? Well, the seed grows and look at the end of verse 27. The sower does not know how. And then to reiterate this point again in verse 27, the seed produces all by itself. In the Greek, this is automate, where it gets automatic. It produces all by itself. The farmer 
does nothing. Before you email me, anyone here who is a farmer, I know a little bit about farming. I grew up in Northumberland, got lots of friends who are farmers, and I get MPK fertiliser um, and the qualities, properties and types of soil, the importance of weathering things. We get that. Jesus gets that. Yet he does have a point here, though. The farmer simply sows the seeds, gets up, goes to bed, gets up, goes to bed, and the seed grows all on its own. He doesn't go out and dig around the cell, the, the, the seed, sorry, and rearrange the cells and pull a stalk out. The seed simply grows all on its own. The germinating power to grow is in the seed, not in the farmer. It is in the gospel, not in the gospel messenger. It is the gospel as the power to bring people into the kingdom of God, not the gospel messengers. I want to take a few minutes just to think about what we mean when we talk about the kingdom of God. Some of us may need to change our language when we talk about the kingdom. Sometimes we speak about building the kingdom. We speak about kingdom work. In one sense, that is legitimate with regards to speaking of work that is in line with the values of the kingdom. It shows that we belong to God's kingdom and are doing it for his sake. But we need to banish from our heads any idea that we build it, expand it, or establish it. The Bible never talks in those terms. I find the New Testament scholar George Eldon Ladd helpful on understanding the kingdom of God. This is what he says about it. The supernatural character of the present kingdom is confirmed by the words in association with it. A number of verbs are used with the kingdom itself as the subject. Then he's got scripture references for all of these here. The kingdom can draw near to men. It can come, arrive, appear, be active. God can give the kingdom to men but men do not give the kingdom to one another. Further, God can take the kingdom away from men, but men do not take it away from one another, although they can prevent others from entering it. Men can enter the kingdom, but are never said to erect it or to build it. Men can receive the kingdom, inherit it and possess it, but they are never said to establish it. Men can reject the kingdom, i.e. refuse to receive it or enter it, they cannot destroy it. They can look for it, pray for its coming, and seek it, but they cannot bring it. Men can preach the kingdom, but only God can give it to men. So the kingdom of God is entirely the work of God. But I need a caution here, though. There is a way we can abuse this. We might be tempted to think, well, if it's all the work of God, then we don't use our brains We don't need to work hard, we don't need to have plans and strategy, we don't need to do any of that if God's going to bring it in. Well, I don't think that's true. We are to work hard, we do need a plan, we do need structures. But that is all about sowing, though. Those things all matter, they all matter massively, but they are about sowing the seeds, about getting the gospel out. We can risk stumbling into all sorts of trouble when we think our work is to do with growing the kingdom of God. That is entirely the work of God and his grace. We sow the seeds, we tell people the gospel, 
But the salvation of people, the growth of God's kingdom is entirely the work of God. Parables can seem mysterious at first. But once we get the main point, they're usually straightforward. I don't think Jesus here could have stated more emphatically our irrelevance relative to the word of God. Not our absolute irrelevance, but our irrelevance relative to the word of God. The point Jesus is making in this parable is that the seed is the word of God that germinates, that grows slowly. The man does nothing but sow, the seed does it all. And it does it slowly. First the stalk, then the ear, then the full grain ripe in the ear. And I find this massively liberating that we sow the seed. It's God who brings his kingdom. But at the same time, if I'm honest, I also struggle with it. Because I look at my life and it just doesn't really match up. You know, we've invited our friends to an event where they hear the gospel. We've told our mates at school or work the gospel what feels like a hundred times. We tell our family over and over again. Yet there's no difference. They seem totally unchanged. But when you plant a seed in some soil, how different does the soil look? Well, no different. It's still black, it's still soily, if that's the word. But we trust that the seed that we planted there may grow and sprout. But the word of God when shared with someone is very often the same. We sow it and the people seem no different. But do you trust that that seed will grow and sprout? Do you really trust in the word of God to do the work of God? We heard earlier from Robin that passage from Isaiah 55 which says this, As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish, so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater. So is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. God's word always achieves what it is set out to accomplish. For some people, the seeds may sprout forth immediately. For others, it may lay dormant for years. It may even serve to harden the soil. We may have to wait many years and quite possibly never even see what the word of God is doing in someone's life. But we need to have confidence that the word of the Lord is never uttered in vain. It always has purposes and God will always accomplish them. This is why in our aim with our work with children and young people here, the primary focus isn't singing songs or having games, but rather it's teaching them the Bible. There's people here who are involved in teaching the Bible and young adults here, and, and I, for one, I don't think there's any here, so I'm be honest, it's not always a joy most weeks. You know, it's just the same routine week after week, and we often see no difference in their lives at all. But take heart. This parable doesn't guarantee, doesn't guarantee us that everyone who hears the gospel will be saved, but it gives us hope that some will. And sometimes you do see fruits from the seed that is sown. When I first came here to start my training, went up to Jessie Bell, one of our members, and thanked her for her work. Because she was my mum's Sunday school teacher. And she taught my mum uh, the gospel. Well, where's the fruit of that? 
well, to me standing up here today, teaching us the gospel. And as I stand out and look out, there are people here who are parents. Parents of children yet to be born, to parents of children who now have their own children. I think so, and we need to remember, what is the one thing that everyone, no matter how old they are, needs in this life? Is it to excel at school? To have good social skills? Is it to have a stable job? Well, no, it's not. It's to hear the gospel. And there is simply no greater gift you can give your child than by telling them the gospel. Not something you want to do once, but weekly, daily, remind them of how great the gospel is. Spend time as a family together reading the Bible and teaching it to them and praying together. If you really want your child to get ahead at school, scrap going through the curriculum for excellence with them. Instead, start going through the Westminster Shorter Catechism with them. And then there'll be people here who have told their children the gospel time after time after time. And there's simply nothing. But don't forget, it is surprising that we wait for the kingdom to grow. I'm not saying that they will become a Christian. That's for God in his grace. But this parable gives us hope that the seeds may still yet grow. As it has done in many lives of people here. People who have wandered away. Yet they've come back. And I don't just mean students here, but people in their 40s, 50s, up to their 90s. The word of the Lord is never uttered in vain. Which is why... I'm not massively concerned if you don't remember the points from this sermon. And I will be a bit concerned. I'm not not that humble. But I'm not massively concerned. Remembering points is not why I preach. I love what the reformer Martin Luther has to say about his preaching. He was a man who proclaimed the gospel and it exploded all over Europe and changed the face of the world forever. This is, in his own words, what his preaching did. I simply taught preached and wrote God's words. Otherwise, I did nothing. And while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer with my friends Phillips and Amsdorf, the word so greatly worked. I did nothing. The word did everything. And just look at verse 29 in our text here. Just think about what this says. From that one slow-growing seed, there will grow to be a harvest. That means that some people will be saved when they hear the gospel, and in that we can be confident. We may never see it, but it doesn't mean that it won't happen. It's often hard for us to believe, but we can be confident of this because God will make it happen. And what Jesus means here by harvest is to encourage the disciples. He doesn't encourage them by saying there's going to be a harvest now, but this harvest Jesus talks about is the one to come when he returns. See, Jesus has always been on track with bringing forth his kingdom. Not through the ways of the world, instead the way of his words slowly growing in the hearts of those who have ears to hear. It's surprising that we wait for the kingdom to grow. Let's look at our second parable together. Follow with me as we read verse 30 to 34. Again he said, What shall we say the kingdom of God is like? Or what parable shall we use to describe it? It's like a mustard seed, which is the smallest seed you plant in the ground. Yet when planted, it grows and becomes the largest of all the garden plants, with such big branches that the birds of the air can perch in its shade. 
With many similar parables, Jesus spoke the word to them as much as they could understand. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. But when he was alone with his own disciples, he explained everything. Here you have the kingdom of God being compared to a mustard seed. Probably the smallest seed known to them at the time. So small, in fact, you can fit 700 seeds in one gram. This is a classic sort of passage I found in my work with students, uh, where they come up to you and say that the mustard seed isn't the smallest seed in the Bible, therefore you can't trust the whole Bible. It's just a saying, the tiny mustard seed thing. It's not like when we talk about trying to find a needle in a haystack. Technically, it's hard to find a contact lens in a haystack. It's just a saying. The same thing applies here with the mustard seed. It's a tiny seed and grows when sown to be the biggest of the garden plants. In fact, it can grow up to 10 foot and birds can nest in it. You can sit in it and have shade in it. Something mightily impressive from something which weighs one seven hundredth of a gram. From surprisingly small to impressively big. This is the point Jesus is making about the kingdom here. There's a reason why Jesus uses language, which he does here in verse 32. It's almost identical to language elsewhere in the Bible. Turn with me, if you have a Bible, to Daniel chapter 4, which is on page 888 in the Blue Church Bibles. And here... King Nebuchadnezzar had a dream and he wants Daniel to interpret it. Let me read from us from verse 20 to 22 of Daniel chapter 4. The tree you saw, which grew large and strong, with its top touching the sky, visible to the whole earth, with beautiful leaves and abundant fruits providing food for all, giving shelter to, to the beasts of the field and having nesting places in its branches for the birds of the air. You, O king, are that tree. You have become great and strong. Your greatness has grown until it reaches the sky and your dominion extends to distant parts of the earth. Daniel explains here to Nebuchadnezzar that his dream means he'll be a mighty king as empire will be seen across the entire globe. And Jesus picks up on this imagery says this is what the kingdom of God will be like. It may be small now, but one day it will exceed Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom. Though it starts with a tiny mustard seed, it will expand to fill the whole earth. And how does this growth work? It's entirely the work of God, but begins through the sowing of this seemingly insignificant seed. Through the sowing of this foolish-looking seed, God's kingdom will grow, and people will be added to it. And yet, for some reason, I doubt this. There's others here who doubt this as well often, Now we feel daft. How is this weak little message actually going to do anything? It works though, doesn't it? It's worked in all of our lives here who are Christians. I mean, come on, the present day church must be bigger than anything those 12 disciples could ever have imagined. An unbroken history for 2,000 years. Believers and churches in every continent. The words of the apostles written down in thousands of languages. Could they ever have dared to imagine such impressive growth from something so small? And you might always be the only Christian in your class. You might only be the only Christian at work, at your golf club, in your rugby team. 
but doesn't mean that the kingdom of God is weak. Yes, the fortunes of it will ebb and flow at different times, but we can be assured of its final victory. And what news for these disciples, what encouraging news for these guys and also for us, that Jesus is right on track in bringing forth his kingdom. Is that the way that we would have chosen? Well, no. Is it laughable to the world? Yes. But we don't hope for the same things that the world hopes in. Our hope for God's kingdom is not tied to the referendum in Scotland. It's, it's not tied to a continuation of charitable status of the church. It's not tied to whether we have our own building. Those things ultimately don't matter. See, the growth of God's kingdom for us is sort of like when you watch sports. But it's a Sunday and obviously you're at church because we're good. And then there's the Six Nations on in the morning and you've not been able to watch the match. So you go home and you go to watch it on iPlayer. Unfortunately, someone tells you the final score of that match. Instead, it means that as you watch it, to the lowest of lows and the highest of highs, you can be confident of how that match turns out. And we know that come the end, Jesus will have his kingdom. We know that Jesus wins. And things may get pretty tough. I don't know how each day is going to turn out. Except that Jesus reigns and he will be adding people to his kingdom. And the growth of God's kingdom doesn't depend on human antics. It's entirely God's work, so don't worry. Do not fret over small beginnings. Do not try to build that which you can only receive. But do not hold back that which you have to sow. God will guard, give, and grow his kingdom. Of that, we can be sure. What we do is sow and wait for God to do God's work in God's way. It is the gospel that people need to hear. As Horatius Bonner said, it is not opinions that man needs, it is truth. It is not theology, it is God. It is not religion, it is Christ. It is not literature and science, but the knowledge of the free love of God and the gift of his only begotten Son. This is the great news people need to hear. Yet we acknowledge that it feels like a tiny mustard seed. It feels feeble. We feel the weight of just the poor little Christians talking, talking away with the same old story. I mean, we're tempted to cut corners, to try something else, or to give up altogether. This can be very real for us. Just look at that promised fruitfulness at the end of those parables. And all these parables is of miracle proportions. Just look at verse 32. Yet when planted, the mustard seed grows and becomes the largest of all the garden plants, with such big branches that the birds of the air can perch in its shade. That is miraculous that such a huge thing can come from something so tiny. The effectiveness of this church's ministry depends fully in the fruitfulness of the word of God. Put our hope in, in the word and we may be surprised but we will not be disappointed. And we can work so, so hard and think, God, is, is your heart really in this? Are you really behind it? Why won't you fight your corner? Why won't you grow your kingdom? And then we can worry, we've missed some sort of vital ingredient. But these parables in chapter 4 assure us that God's heart is in his work. 
to the world, preaching seems rubbish. The cross seems ridiculous. But God chooses very unusual means to accomplish his work. He is an obscure, itinerant preacher. He died on a cross. But is it really conceivable that God could let the magnificent work of his son go unnoticed? Well, of course not. That is why we have, after each parable, this huge result in the end. The kingdom of God is advancing all over the world, just as Jesus said it would. He's telling people the gospel to the seemingly wasting or scattering of the seeds as we saw in the first parable. As we wait for the kingdom to grow in our first parable this evening, to the weakness of the gospel, so it seems to the world, in our third parable this evening. The kingdom of God has gone the way of the seed. And in that, as we end, we have two comforts. First, that Jesus said it would progress like this. What we have found is true. It authenticates our experience of normal and encourages us to never move on to some new thing, rather to hold fast to telling people the gospel, whatever temptations we might come across. And secondly, we have every reason to believe that the kingdom's small beginnings are no measure for the harvest to come, for that shall be of miracle proportions. It would be a massive mistake to think that because the kingdom seems to grow slow now, it will always be so. At the harvest, there will be a crop so big that no man can number. No one will be missing who God has not called to be there. And we will not care one bit that it took so long to grow. Let's pray together. Our Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you that indeed we do have a gospel to proclaim. We thank you that we have seeds to sow. So Father, give us confidence in your words, we ask. Help us to trust your word that indeed it does your work. Father, help us to never move on from your words. Give us patience as the Lord Jesus grows his seeds. Give us an urgency as well to go out and to not hold back that which we have to sow. And not to be disheartened when we do not see any fruits from it, but rather to trust wholeheartedly in you. And we thank you that salvation is 100% down to you. Father, we're sorry for the times when we think it's down to us. Keep us faithful to the work that you have given us to do. We thank you that you shall be continuing to save people. There's no one who is ferociously more passionate about saving people than you are. Father, help us to not decide for our friends that they aren't interested in Jesus. Instead, to tell them the gospel. Give us the boldness by your Holy Spirit to do so. We pray again for Graham Daniels speaking at these events next week. May you help him to, to tell the gospel well to the people there. May be working in the hearts of all those who will be hearing the gospel as well, Father. And may you bring many people in the city to salvation in Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.